0: When we refer to confidence in our day-to-day life, what we're referring to is our ability to believe that we can achieve something. It's the probability of our own success or our own failure. Typically when we talk about confidence, we're talking about confidence in a more positive context, feeling really good, in our likelihood to achieve something, but we can also be really confident in our likelihood of failure. So confidence can go in both ways because it is essentially our brain's way of assessing risks and helping us make decisions that mitigate uncertainty. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Nerdy to Me. My name is Alex Nashton, if we've never met before, and I am the host of this super nerdy podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be diving into the neuroscience of confidence and how you can start to rewire yourself to have more of it. The inspiration behind this podcast was actually a private workshop that I facilitated a few months ago for a few of my one-on-one coaching clients and graduates of my teacher training programs. I once a year hold a breathwork and meditation teacher training, and then once a year facilitate a yoga nidra teacher training program, and had a few students and clients very specifically who were expressing a few months back a need for more support in building up their level of confidence both in teaching and in leadership, as well as within their personal lives, in their professional lives, and specifically within dating and relationships. And so when it became clear to me that there was a very obvious need for a deep dive and greater level of support, I created this workshop, and because of the intimate nature of what needs to happen when we dive into building and strengthening our confidence, that workshop was not something that was offered to the general public It wasn't offered to listeners like you, although maybe at some point I will offer something like that at a future date, and it also wasn't recorded. But upon further reflection, and after getting some DMs about what kind of podcast episodes you're most interested in right now, it seemed very clear that something around building and strengthening confidence would be really supportive to you. I want to start off this episode by sharing that a few months back, I was having a conversation with a few close girlfriends and new girlfriends, and one of the reflections that they gave me was that I struck them as somebody who was extremely self-confident and had a lot of self-worth and self-esteem and that they wanted to have the same. And what my answer to that reflection was... This is not something that was inherent for me. I've had to work really hard to develop and build up my level of self-confidence. I used to be an extremely insecure person. And how I did that was essentially through brainwashing myself on as much material information as I could on what is happening in the brain when we feel a lack of self-confidence and what is required, what it takes to actually begin to build it up. And so within the container of this workshop that I facilitated for my students and my clients, there was a strong element of group coaching to it. There were a lot of partnered exercises and group exercises, because as we'll talk about a little later on in this episode, vocalization and speaking up is a really big part of how we strengthen our ability to feel confident in ourselves. But before that, there was a little bit of a lecture portion of the workshop, and that is really what I'm going to be sharing with you here, the neuroscience and a deeper psychological understanding of what goes into our formulation of self-confidence and how we can begin to strengthen that. So I'll give you some of the really practical, actionable homework assignments that I gave the students and clients that attended that workshop so that you can go off and start to practice and implement them on your own. In addition to being a nerd about the neuroscience, there are a lot of other areas that I love to nerd out on, and one of them is words and the etymology of words. So I figured that would be a really good place for us to start. When we look at the etymology of the word confidence, it comes from the Latin root words confidere or confidentia, meaning trustworthiness or to have full trust, the reliability of a person or experience. So when we talk about confidence now in 2023 in the English language, not referring to the ancient Latin, what we're typically referring to is either a subjective emotional experience or the other arena that the word confidence is often used in is the world of scientific research and specifically research statistics. And we do that through a statistics confidence interval. And I think that it's important to reference this really quickly because there's such an interesting interconnectedness between what the scientific research definition, statistical definition is, and what our subjective emotional experience is. So when we talk about confidence or confidence interval in the world of scientific research and statistics, what we're doing is measuring the probability that the hypothesis that we have is right. So say, for example, I, Alex Nashton, have a hypothesis that Talk Nerdy to Me is the greatest neuroscience podcast on the internet. And I wanted to test that in a controlled research setting. I would gather a group of people and probably poll them or quiz them and ask them what their favorite neuroscience podcast is. The confidence interval that we use in the world of statistics is basically a way of measuring how likely it is that the results that we're finding are relatable to the outside world. Just because we find that the hypothesis is supported in that small group of people, for example, saying that Talk Nerdy to Me is the greatest neuroscience podcast on the internet, that doesn't mean that that applies to the general population. It doesn't mean that we can say that the hypothesis is right quote unquote and definitively objectively the truth but what we can say is that we have a percentage of confidence that it may be right or it may be supported that is our statistical confidence interval and the same goes for us in our subjective emotional experience when we refer to confidence in our day-to-day life What we're referring to is our ability to believe that we can achieve something. It's the probability of our own success or our own failure. Typically, when we talk about confidence, we're talking about confidence in a more positive context, right? Feeling really good in our likelihood to achieve something feeling really confident in our ability to go ask that random stranger for their number or give a big presentation at work. But we can also be really confident in our likelihood of failure. We can be really confident that if we go give a speech that it's going to be a total train wreck and we're going to plummet. We can be totally confident that we're going to completely flunk our major exam at school. We can be confident that if we were to ask that random stranger for a number, that they would reject us. So confidence can go in both ways because it's our ability to assess the probability of success or failure in any given situation. It is essentially our brain's way of assessing risks and helping us make decisions that mitigate uncertainty. Because the reality is in all of those different situations... We don't know if the stranger is going to actually give us their number. We don't know how we're actually going to do giving this major presentation at work. We don't know what the results are that we're going to get on the exam until after we've already taken it. And if you've listened to previous podcast episodes with me, specifically the podcast on your amygdala, fear, and anxiety, you know that anxiety is the fear of a future event or uncertain outcome. There are very few things that our brain dislikes as much as it dislikes uncertainty. So confidence is one of the ways that we are able to mitigate that uncertainty and create an illusion of control for us that helps us feel safer. Now what I want to highlight here is that even though confidence enables us to feel safe by creating an illusion of certainty, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's helpful. So if we have developed, for example, a really low level of confidence in our ability to achieve success in asking for that random stranger's number, that's a way of helping us feel like we have some sense of control over the unpredictability of what's about to happen. What we also know from a cognitive bias perspective is that more than anything else, our brains really, really love to be right. We love to affirm the beliefs that we hold to be true. We love to affirm the hypotheses and estimates and guesses that we have about what will happen in any given situation, the likelihood of any given outcome. And so we develop a level of confidence within certain arenas formulated by the belief systems that we have of ourselves and the world around us the thing about the belief systems that we have is that they're not objective facts they're not objective truth and oftentimes they're not actually a reflection of reality as it is either our belief systems are the stories and narratives that we tell ourselves based on our perceptual experience and our perception is often something that's clouded by interpretation emotion, judgment, nervous system imprints that we have from the past, so our triggers and our trauma. But because they're not often an accurate reflection of reality, they're malleable. They can be manipulated. They can be changed. And we can talk about in a little bit what actually goes into changing some of those belief systems. But before we do, I think it's really important that we take stock of where our level of confidence is right now and how that has served us, how that supported us. For those of you that have listened to episode two of this podcast, The Neuroscience of Habit Change with Dr. Alex Korb, we talk about in greater depth how we as human beings never participate in a pattern or habit unless it was useful at some point in time. And your level of confidence is a pattern and a habit as well. So I think it's really important that we stop and address how your current level of confidence has supported you or protected you or benefited you up until this point in your life. So when I was facilitating this workshop a few months ago, I had everybody bring a notebook and a pen. And it was at this point that I had them stop and use some of these questions that I'm about to ask all of you as a little bit of a a writing prompt. And if you'd like to, you are more than welcome to pause this episode and start writing and jotting down right now your answers to some of these questions. But the first one was, how does my current level of confidence protect me? What does it protect me from? How does it benefit me? And I'll use an example from my personal life. About 10 years ago, I had very little self-confidence, especially as it pertained to romantic relationships and dating. How that manifested in terms of my actions and behaviors was in making really poor choices in romantic partners. Choosing partners that I either wasn't actually that interested in that I didn't care all that much about. Not because they weren't good people, but just because they weren't people who really sparked my interest. Or I would date men who were so completely unavailable that I knew I would be rejected on some level before it even really began. So what my level of confidence there protected me from was the vulnerability and depth that comes with being in a romantic relationship or a relationship with somebody that I really liked and was really, really interested in that could possibly hurt me. I benefited from my level of confidence because it helped me play really small and safe to keep my comfort zone really contained rather than stepping outside of it and am facing the risk of potential for a lot of love in my life, but also the risk for real rejection rather than being rejected by somebody who I already knew was going to be dishing it out from the very beginning. The second questions, which I already kind of gave answers to in that example, and again, you can pause this episode and start to write down our journalists out, is what is the fear that I am avoiding What am I truly afraid of? And when I started to do this work on myself, the fear that really started to come forward was that I wouldn't be good enough. That if somebody knew the real me, that if I found someone that I truly felt drawn towards and we got to a greater level of depth and vulnerability and intimacy in our relationship, if they saw every single facet of me and who I really was, that it wouldn't be good enough and that I would be rejected. The thing that I was truly afraid of was loss. So at the root of my low level of confidence was a poor misbelief that no one would choose me if they knew who I really was, that I wasn't good enough, that I was too weird, <laughs> too strange too wild and i want to take a moment to pause here and get back to the neuroscience a little bit more because i think that that's really important and why all of you are here because the parts of our brain that process negative self-reflections are different from the parts of our brain that process self-confidence Negative self-reflections, so the parts of us that process the beliefs around I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, I'm too weird, no one will really choose me if they know who I am, those types of misbeliefs, those negative self-reflections are processed by two different parts of the brain. The ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which has a lot to do with our perception of ourself, our identity, And then the other area of the brain that's associated with negative self-reflections is the anterior cingulate cortex. This is the part of our brain that is responsible for identifying when things are wrong or misplaced. So if you, for example, walk into a room, let's say it's your bedroom, and you notice that things are moved around in a way that is different from how you left them, the kind of alarm system of something is wrong, something's not right here, is a function of the anterior cingulate cortex. Your anterior cingulate cortex is also the part of your brain that kind of lights up and comes online in body dysmorphia. So when you look in the mirror and see a reflection of yourself that is incongruent with reality, this part of the brain lights up in your literal physical self-reflection alerting you to the misinformation that something is wrong with what you are seeing. And I think this is really interesting and useful information because these two parts of the brain are different from the part of your brain that's associated with positive levels of self-confidence and self-esteem. Those are more a function of the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. Now, why this is so important to recognize is because the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex is also the part of your brain that lights up and comes online in the process of affect labeling and in the process of vocalizing and verbalizing what it is that we are experiencing. So expressing ourselves to another person. In other words, communicating where we're at and what's going on internally for us is something that is processed by the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex now there is a lot of research showing that when we strengthen our level of confidence we subsequently strengthen our communication skills when we strengthen our communication skills we subsequently strengthen our level of positive self-confidence So it's kind of like by activating the brain in one way through affect labeling, vocalizing, and verbalizing what it is that we're experiencing, we can also sneakily start to elevate our level of confidence in ourselves as well. Affect labeling, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, is an emotional regulation technique that basically works through labeling the emotion that you're experiencing and identifying where it's come from. Subsequently, from there, you can move into reappraising the emotional experience or reinterpreting it in a way that allows you to consciously diffuse and create some space and distance between yourself and the emotions so that your body and your nervous system can begin to calm down. It's something that's used specifically pretty often with more negative emotional experiences like anger or grief, sadness, rage, shame, or jealousy. Now, affect labeling is something that you can do on your own. But over and over again, there's been shown to be a tremendous amount of therapeutic value in being witnessed by another person as you go through this process. And what that requires is a certain level of vulnerability that is essential to our building up of confidence levels. Part of what enables us to feel really confident in ourselves is the ability to make ourselves vulnerable, to open up the potential for rejection, and to get the evidence under our belt that affirms that we will be okay no matter what happens. Although we talked about a little earlier on in this episode that our confidence level is a way of mitigating risk or likelihood or probability of success or failure, in any given situation, the areas that I found that it's the most prevalent and lacking in my students and in my clients is in our interpersonal relationships, both professionally as well as romantically and even sometimes within our friendships. And so what I've seen over and over and over again that is tremendously helpful in elevating a level of self-confidence is putting ourselves in positions where we can be really vulnerable, where we can be seen and witnessed as very much fallible, imperfect, emotional human beings, and get the evidence under our belt that nothing bad happens when we're vulnerable. And if it does, if we do experience rejection, that we survive, we move on, and we're incredibly resilient. And we can subsequently use those emotional regulation techniques to aid us in our recovery from that rejection and move forward. So in this workshop that I facilitated, one of the things that I had the participants do was to partner up. I put them all in breakout rooms. And I had them say out loud to each other the answers to those questions that they wrote down of how their current level of confidence protects them, how it benefits them, what the fear is that they are avoiding through their level of confidence and what it is that they're truly, truly afraid of. What makes this really successful in terms of elevating your level of self-confidence is to practice this skill within a contained, safe, supportive space. So in the context of this workshop that I facilitated, everybody agreed to confidentiality at the very beginning. Everybody agreed that they would not be speaking about the other participants' experiences or vulnerability or anything else that anybody else shared with anyone beyond that two and a half hours that we were all together online. What I also guided and instructed them to do before sharing with a partner was that whoever was listening to the partner who was sharing was not offering advice, not offering feedback, not offering any sort of reflection, just listening compassionately and patiently, and then saying thank you for sharing at the end or saying something to be effective. I could see that it took a lot of courage for you to share that, so thank you, and then leaving it there. And that's something that you can advocate for in yourself as you start to make more vulnerable shares with the people in your lives and start putting some of these things into practice so that you can build your own level of confidence as well. You can explicitly say to someone that you love and trust, I'm looking to build my level of confidence, I was wondering if you would be willing to give me space to move through this affect labeling or to bear witness to my answers to some of these writing prompts. What I really need from you here is just a listening ear. I don't need your advice. I don't want any reflections. Just a listening ear and that's it. And what I also want to share here is that this can be really, really scary for folks. Making ourselves vulnerable in this way can be terrifying. And that is in part the point, is to confront the things that we're afraid of so that we get a little more evidence and information that can then formulate a new blueprint for the level of confidence that we have in a way that positively supports us rather than holds us back and keeps us small. What's important to note here is that sometimes when we're in such a strong state of fight-flight-freeze, specifically when we're in a freeze state, the parts of our brain that process the creation of language can sometimes go offline. So it's quite common to get into a situation like this and feel yourself totally clam up and feel like the words are just incapable of coming out or that you go totally blank or black out inside and that there just aren't words available to you. And what I want to share with you here, if that happens, is that coming back to your five senses is a really great way to begin to resource yourself and ground yourself again. So reconnect your attention back to the things that you're seeing and smelling and feeling and hearing and tasting. And if it's helpful, you can internally think to yourself as the language centers start to come back online again. I'm hearing the sound of birds outside of my window. I'm smelling the cup of coffee that I just brewed. I am seeing the books that are lining my bookshelf or whatever it may be. As a way to start to regulate your nervous system back to the safety of this moment, to get it out of its freeze state, and to slowly start to bring your language centers back online again. So those are your first two big homework assignments from this episode. So the first is to answer those questions. What does my current level of confidence protect me from? How does it benefit me? What is the fear that I am avoiding and what am I truly afraid of? And then to practice vocalizing that to another person. From there, we're gonna move into a few more writing prompts. The first question that I'm gonna invite you to ask yourself here is, what beliefs have helped me formulate the level of confidence that I currently have? Or in other words, what beliefs limit my current level of confidence? And who or how would I be without them? And I'll give you another example from my personal life because I know that they can be really helpful. Before I was able to transition into fully working for myself, I was teaching yoga and I had a side hustle. I was waiting tables at a restaurant in Venice Beach, California, and I was going to school all at the same time. And the restaurant that I was working at was really healthy and vibrant and I worked with an amazing team of people. We had a ton of fun together but it was also a restaurant that was super popular and a lot of times the students who were taking my yoga classes at the local studios would come into the restaurant to eat and at that point in time I had a really low level of confidence in myself as a yoga teacher. I was pretty good at teaching yoga. My level of confidence was not an accurate reflection of the quality of teacher that I was, but I didn't feel confident in my ability to teach yoga because I had a belief system in place that a successful yoga teacher is somebody who can make a living just teaching yoga and doesn't need a side hustle of waiting tables. So That was the underlying belief that formulated my level of confidence. What subsequently spiraled out from there were a lot of other unhelpful beliefs. The belief that my yoga students wouldn't respect me or see me as a high quality teacher if they also saw me waiting tables, that they weren't going to take me seriously, that Other yoga teachers who were able to make a living just teaching yoga would come into the restaurant and see me as not on their level. And some of that was affirmed by actual experiences that I had. I remember when I was waiting tables, there were a lot of, and this was in Los Angeles, California as well. So mind you, this place is a Mecca for spirituality and meditation. But there were a lot of big name meditation teachers who used to come into the restaurant and would treat me very differently when I was their server than when they met me a few years later in a neuroscience and meditative capacity. The level of respect that they had for me was different. So I did have life experience and evidence that contributed to this belief system that I had. That people wouldn't take me seriously as a yoga teacher if they saw me waiting tables. How that manifested in terms of my behavior was that if I saw another teacher come into the restaurant, or if I saw one of my students come into the restaurant, I would run to the back room and hide there eating french fries until after they left. Which, needless to say, didn't really do me many favors in terms of having success as a waitress either when I was neglecting all of my other tables because I was so embarrassed about the fact that my students and my clients would see me there. And in terms of who would I be without those beliefs and how would I be without those beliefs, even if I was in a completely neutral relationship with them, where it didn't make any bearing on my level of confidence that I happened to be waiting tables as well. I would be using my experience of waiting tables as an opportunity to deeply connect with the people who were in front of me, to build up my sense of community beyond the yoga studio, rather than keeping those two facets of my life completely separate. So the person that I would be without those belief systems, would use every opportunity to connect with people as not fuel or ammunition to plummet my self-esteem, or as fuel or ammunition to elevate it, but just as an opportunity to really be present with the people who were in front of me. The thing about having a low level of confidence that is generally really unhelpful for us is that it limits our behavior. It holds us back. It keeps us small by keeping us safe and contained within our comfort zone. And oftentimes we make our ability to take action towards the things that we want and take action towards the life that we want dependent on feeling confident first before we're able to do that. But the thing about confidence is that it's usually formulated based on our blueprint of evidence that we've accumulated from past experiences. And that continuous accumulation of past experiences doesn't really give us the opportunity to create a new vision for ourselves moving forward. The reality is we can choose to believe in and subscribe to any number of stories and narratives about ourselves and the world around us. They don't just have to be based on past experiences. We can also choose to subscribe to beliefs that are based on a future reality that does not yet exist. And our ability to take action is not dependent on the level of confidence that we have. We are capable of taking action whether we feel confident or not. So the last question that I asked you, who or how would you be without the beliefs that have formulated your current level of confidence? The last two questions I'll leave you with before we start to wrap up this episode are how does that person behave or act? And what else is stopping you from taking action? Is there anything else that's getting in the way? what you'll usually find is that whatever answer comes up likely has its roots in fear. And the reality is that you can take action whether or not you are afraid, whether or not you feel confident. And through your taking action and the continuous affirmation that for the most part, nothing bad really happens when you do. And when you do face adversity or rejection through taking action, you are so resilient and you can recover from it, that is actually the thing that starts to help you build and build and build. You can absolutely rewire your brain to become increasingly self-confident, but what is required for that is a willingness to get vulnerable, a willingness to get uncomfortable, And a willingness to recondition your relationship with uncertainty in such a way that your current level of confidence is no longer based on a blueprint of past experiences, evidence, and belief systems, but based more on the model of who you want to be and how you want to be in the world. If you have listened to this episode within the first week of its release, then I would love to make you a really special offer for support. If you have been using this episode as it was originally intended, as a workshop, if you've been answering the questions, if you've been writing in your notebook, if you've been finding somebody to practice vocalizing and verbalizing and affect labeling, all the things that you feel fearful and uncomfortable with, and you're still finding that there is a place where you're a little stuck or a little resistant... If there's a lot of fear coming up for you or you want some next steps on how to continue building up your level of confidence from here, send me a DM over on Instagram at Alex Nashton. And let me know what you got from this episode, where you're wanting a little bit of support, and I'm happy to give you a little bit of voice memo DM coaching over there. Thank you so, so much for being willing to tune in today and talk nerdy to me. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.